Inject wastewater A, earthquakes B. Today, Wednesday, March 27th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. New evidence links fracking, wastewater, and earthquakes. Whether here or around the globe, the fear is the same. There's a lot of concern that you're essentially either going to lubricate faults that already exist or exacerbate them in some way. Also, is a pesticide harming honeybees on both sides of the Atlantic? It's like they're drunk and, you know, it makes them more easily confused, more easily lost. And later, the globalization of the same-sex marriage debate. One of the things that's really striking in Latin America is how quickly the concept of same-sex marriage and gay rights more broadly was integrated into their legal structures for protecting human rights. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We begin the program today with three stories that have one thing in common. They all involve a concern for protecting the environment. In a few minutes, we'll hear about efforts to ban a pesticide that may be affecting bee populations and also about a new trend that ties executive bonuses to a company's environmental track record. But we start with a topic we've been talking a lot about lately, fracking. A growing number of companies around the globe are using this procedure to extract natural gas and oil. At the same time, local communities here in the U.S., but also in other countries, fiercely oppose the practice because of concerns about groundwater pollution and earthquakes. A new study published in the journal Geology adds more reason to worry. It shows that the largest recorded earthquake in Oklahoma, a magnitude 5.6 in November 2011, was caused by the underground injection of wastewater from oil drilling. David Biello is an editor with the magazine Scientific American. He writes about energy and the environment and joins us now from New York. David, just to be clear, it wasn't fracking itself that caused the quake in Oklahoma, but what was happening with the wastewater used in the drilling process. Explain that to us. That's exactly right. What you have to keep in mind is that the U.S. oil and gas industry produces 2.5 billion gallons of wastewater per day, and they have to find something to do with it. Uh, And what they most commonly do is dump it back down the wells that they have drilled, and that's fine. The problem is In the case of Oklahoma, they pumped too much wastewater back down there, and that led to kind of overpressuring, and that extra pressure caused a a local fault to slip and caused this swarm of earthquakes. So these kind of earthquakes have been cast as a phenomenon related to fracking. Tell us how it is related and how it isn't related. Well, it is related in the sense that fracking produces a lot of wastewater, and wastewater is one of the biggest challenges facing the fracking industry. But it's not just fracking that produces man-made earthquakes. If you look around the world, in 2011, there was an earthquake in Spain that turned out to be caused by groundwater extraction. So local farmers had been taking water out of an underground aquifer for about 50 years. They dropped the local water table about 250 meters, and that was enough to kind of remove enough water pressure that the local fault then slipped and that leveled a town. Is the risk for earthquakes greater with fracking than any other type of procedure? The jury is still out on that. 
uh, obviously with fracking, and, and maybe I should describe what fracking is. Uh, fracking is, is essentially pumping a cocktail of water and a, and a little bit of chemicals deep underground to fracture a layer of rock and to release the gas within. So there's a lot of concern that you're essentially either going to lubricate faults that already exist or exacerbate them in some way and therefore set off some earthquakes. And there does seem to be uh, an uptick in the number of, of small earthquakes across the country in some parts of the country that don't see as many earthquakes. Right. And what about quakes related to fracking and petroleum drilling elsewhere around the world? I mean, including a case in the UK that put uh, test fracking on hold there for a while. Well, essentially, anywhere that this uh, goes on, there is a risk. Uh, You're relying on geologists to study the subsurface and warn you if you're fracking too close to a fault. In the case of the UK, they seem to have crept a little bit too close to some uh, pre-existing faults that set off some, some very weak earthquakes, but that was enough to scare folks and call a halt until better procedures could be put in place. And that's really the key takeaway. This can be done safely, and the key to that is appropriate oversight. So how did these new findings, and the, the case of Oklahoma in particular, impact our understanding about the risk from fracking, and will it alter the debate at all? The biggest surprise from Oklahoma is how long after kind of wastewater injection has begun that an earthquake can occur. It was thought that an earthquake would either occur or not occur in kind of rapid succession. But this was a process that took a couple decades and resulted then in the largest earthquake ever recorded in Oklahoma's history. Also, it would be the largest man-made earthquake on record. David Biello, an editor with Scientific American. Thank you. Thank you. We have more coverage of fracking and other oil extraction practices, including a feature on concerns about fracking in the UK. That's at theworld.org. Here's another environmental issue that's got people around the world concerned. Pesticides, specifically a group of pesticides that some scientists fear are harming bees and interfering with their ability to pollinate crops and other flowering plants. It's a big issue as the spring growing season approaches here in the Northern Hemisphere. And as the world's Jerry Haddon reports, it stirred up a hornet's nest of controversy on both sides of the Atlantic. In a vast cherry orchard outside Yeva, Spain, beekeeper Antoni Areste sets his honeybees loose on the first flowering crop of the season. To get close to his portable wooden hives, he uses a smoker to calm the millions of swarming insects. This is the busiest time of the year for Areste. It's also a worrying time. Areste says he used to lose between 5 and 10 percent of his hives per year. Now it's up to 30 percent. It's not viable, he says. We beekeepers are the protectors of the environment. Because without bees, flowering plants don't get pollinated. And it's not just honey producers who are concerned. Bees of all kinds are vital to dozens of crops in Spain and around the world. If bees are in trouble, so is much of the food supply. That's why Areste has closely followed the growing debate in Europe over the use of neonicotinoid pesticides, or neonics for short. Neonics are widely used on an array of flowering crops, and Areste says he believes traces of the chemicals are contributing to his losses. When a hive dies, he says, it's just empty inside, like an abandoned town. You're left with some traces of honey and pollen. No one disputes that neonics, a widely used class of pesticides that attack insects' nervous systems, can kill bees. The question is whether they're harmful at the sublethal doses bees and other pollinators currently encounter on food crops.
Neonics have been around for about 30 years, but about 10 years ago, they started being used to coat seeds before they're planted. The chemicals are absorbed into the crops and spread throughout their tissues to fight off insect predators. The problem, says British bee researcher Dave Goulson, is that when used to treat seeds, traces of the toxins also end up in a plant's flowers. They're typically not enough to kill the bees, but these are neurotoxins, so they're still going to be affecting its brain. Goulson and a team of researchers in Scotland have just published their findings from a study on the effects of neonics on wild bumblebees. In their experiment, they fed some bumblebees nectar laced with amounts of neonics similar to what you'd find on, say, sunflower or corn crops. Meanwhile, they kept a control group of bees pesticide-free. We then put those nests outside and just let them grow as bumblebee nests naturally do. They had to gather all their own food. Weeks later, they brought the nests in and measured a key indicator of beehive health, queen bee production. Each year, it's the queens who go out and start new hives. Without them, bee populations die off. Goulson's team found a huge difference between the pesticide-free bees and the bees exposed in the lab. There was an 85% drop in queen production between the control nests and those given a realistic dose. Goulson believes the drop in queens occurred because the bees exposed to neonics were disoriented and collected less food for the hive's grubs, which include the next generation of queens. It's like they're drunk or they've been taking some other kind of drug and, you know, it makes them more easily confused, more easily lost and so on. It's studies like these that have given European regulators pause. Several European countries already restrict the use of neonics, including France, Italy, and Slovenia. In January, Europe's Food Safety Authority concluded that neonics pose an unacceptably high risk to pollinators. That, in part, led the European Commission to propose a two-year ban on their use on flowering crops. But Europe's agrochemical industry says studies like Goulson's are flawed. Angel Martin of the European Crop Protection Association says such a moratorium would be devastating for agriculture. For the major crops like sunflower, rapeseed or maize, the lack of availability of these technologies for farmers will mean a loss of 5 billion euros. For some of the pests, they wouldn't find alternatives. Environmental groups like Friends of the Earth say there are non-chemical alternatives to the neonics, but Martin says farmers would just stop planting some crops at the cost of thousands of jobs. Those arguments convinced enough European governments to block the moratorium, at least for now, but it will be reconsidered later this spring. The vote will be watched closely in the U.S. Neonicotinoids are used heavily on corn there. And last week, a coalition of activists filed a lawsuit against the EPA, hoping to force the agency to ban some of the pesticides because of the risk to bees. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Yeda, Spain. If there's a single bottom line between many environmental issues, it's the question of responsibility. Who should take responsibility for avoiding environmental damage? One emerging idea from the business world, pay their executives more. Here's the world's Jason Margolis. Hugh Welsh heads the North American operation of the Dutch life sciences company DSM. The company makes everything from plastics to biomedical devices to nutritional supplements. And like most corporate executives these days, Welsh gets a bonus for meeting certain performance goals. But some of those goals wouldn't show up in most corporate reports. For instance, progress towards the company's goal of lowering greenhouse gas emissions by 25% within a decade. So each year there would be a target set for that annualized greenhouse gas emission reduction, and that must be met or I don't get that portion of my bonus. In fact, for the past two years, a third of Welsh's bonus has depended on meeting greenhouse gas targets, as well as targets for using less water and energy. 
The company has taken on projects ranging from installing solar farms on its properties to returning to natural landscaping to cut back on water and fertilizer usage. Using less energy and water saves the company money right now. And Welsh says they're also concerned about the growing number of severe weather events linked to climate change, such as last year's major U.S. drought and Hurricane Sandy. And those have uh, adverse impacts on our businesses and would have more severe adverse impacts on our businesses down the road. So whatever we can do to mitigate that, we see as good business. Let's be clear. When people get compensated for something, they make sure it gets done well. Mindy Luber says tying executive compensation to environmental goals makes sense. She's the CEO of Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit that helps companies deal with sustainability issues. But linking compensation to environmental measures still isn't all that common, perhaps in part because companies have to spend more money up front to save money and protect the environment in the long run. Ceres polled 600 multinationals and found only 7% doing it. Luber says European companies, like DSM, are leading the way. We know that sustainability is an ethic in Europe, is embedded in people's lives from the time they're born. Uh, Not so much in the United States, I'm embarrassed to say. And it's the same with companies. European companies also have to deal with more environmental regulations. And that pushes them to innovate, says Paul Simpson. He's the CEO of CDP, a London firm that measures the financial impacts of environmental policies. Simpson also likes the idea of tying bonuses to environmental goals. But he says to truly be effective, the tactic has to be integrated across an entire company. Historically, you might have had big businesses with 100,000 employees having two people work on environment, right? Now, that's kind of not going to get you very far. If you want to really embed this in your business, you've got to get some or all of your staff to take it seriously and therefore providing these incentives makes complete sense. If you can change your staff, you can realize the the benefits of sustainability far quicker in the business. But resistance among many executives may be hard to shake. After all, as Hugh Welsh with DSM knows all too well, you need to perform to get paid. We met other metrics with respect to water usage and energy usage, but our greenhouse gas emission uh, metric was not met. So that portion of my bonus I did not get. Hmm. Did that upset you, or is that just the way it goes? Uh, That's the way it goes, but I guess we'll redouble our efforts to get there uh, this year. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Federal Defense of Marriage Act took center stage at the Supreme Court today. The justices heard arguments about whether the law discriminates against same-sex married couples by denying those couples certain federal benefits. As we've reported, the American debate over same-sex marriage resonates loudly in many countries around the globe. Yesterday, we heard views on this issue from France, Russia, and South Africa. Today, we turn our focus to Latin America. Same-sex marriage is legal in Argentina and in parts of Brazil and Mexico. Lester Fader is a freelance journalist who's written about the changing gay rights landscape in Latin America. He spoke to us earlier from Cape Town, South Africa. 
One of the things that's really striking in Latin America is how powerful the notion of human rights is and how quickly the concept of same-sex marriage and gay rights more broadly was integrated into their legal structures for protecting human rights. That's something that the federal courts, at least in the United States, have come gradually to. And obviously, this is the, the biggest and most complicated challenge that we've seen in the U.S. But courts and, and legislators in places like Argentina or very recently in Mexico have taken this question and gone very far with it, advancing their legal framework for human rights and, and same-sex marriage rights much faster, it seems, in some ways than in the United States. Well, I mean, uh, the, the new pope, Francis, is from Argentina, and the Catholic Church doesn't support same-sex marriage. So how did it happen that Catholic-heavy Latin America did lead the way? It's really interesting when you when you look globally. In fact, the places where same-sex marriage um, and and gay rights in general have really foundered, it tends to be actually in, in Muslim and Protestant parts of the world, especially the places where um, evangelical churches are the strongest. Brazil is a really fascinating example. On the one hand, you've seen a lot of progress through the courts on same-sex marriage and gay rights. On the other hand, there's a very powerful evangelical bloc in parliament, or excuse me, in their in their national legislature mm. that potentially can stall that and has been advocating laws um, going the other way. But the Catholic Church, especially in a place like Argentina, is a cultural institution with a lot of history, but it's a very secular country and it doesn't have a lot of power in politics. The same is true in Mexico, which has been secular in, in its politics for many decades. So we have a kind of monolithic notion of Latin America and the influence of the Catholic Church, but the reality is far more complicated. So there are changes underway in Colombia as well, I gather. Colombia is a fascinating place. By the summer, the courts have ordered Congress to either pass a law legalizing marriage or it will allow same-sex couples to go to notaries and the words they use is solemnize their unions automatically under, under judicial fiat. The court's ruling was ambiguous, though, about whether or not that's actually marriage. It didn't use that term. Whether that means that marriages will start happening or whether you're going to see a new round of lawsuits trying to clarify if the court did, in fact, intend for that to mean marriages or whether it's a new kind of civil union. So there are 10 countries, if I'm not mistaken, around the world that do legally permit same-sex marriage. You're in Cape Town. What's it like following the debate in the U.S. from there and knowing everything that you know about this debate around the world? I think, like many Americans, speaking just personally for myself, I'm keenly aware of what's been happening at home and am used to thinking of the United States as really, in a lot of ways, defining the bar of social rights and, and establishing pockets that are, are far more liberal than a lot of other places in the world. And what I'm finding is that when looking at this issue and the way that gay rights has been pursued across the globe, there are places that are far more complicated than my stereotypes would lead me to believe. One example is Nepal, which is not a place that I'd necessarily given a lot of thought to in terms of their laws, but they're right. a far more rural country than we are. And yet they had a landmark ruling establishing rights for gay and transgender people well before our, our courts really took up the question in a, in a serious fashion. Lester Fader, a writer and Alicia Patterson Foundation fellow. He's also a contributor to BuzzFeed. Lester, good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you so much. The same-sex marriage debate is not a universal one. You don't hear much about it in, say, East Asia. But immigrants who come here to the U.S. take the topic on board, just as they do everything else. And they often see same-sex marriage through the filter of their old and new home. 
Here's the world's Alex Galifant in New York. Alphabet City is on New York's far east side. It's a downtown neighborhood that's long been home to waves of immigrants from all over the world. I popped into a laundromat there and asked one of the owners, Kim, what she thought about gay marriage. I say that's good. Yeah, yeah before that's um, freedom. No problem. Kim came here from Vietnam in 1990. She left behind a country that she says wasn't so free, and is getting better only slowly. Now they're good, but still no freedom like American. Like America. American, you can talk anything you want. Nobody follow you, but my country, no, no. Within a couple of blocks, there were two more laundromats. This one, the Avenue A laundromat, is run by Grace, who arrived in the U.S. in 1994 from South Korea. And I'm from Seoul, Gangnam, and you know the side, Gangnam style, it's the same place. Grace, who's Buddhist, hangs lotus flowers made of folded paper around the laundromat. Yeah, look at this. Isn't it pretty? <laughs> yeah, we believe, you know, the, in the heaven. Everybody has a, one flower or two flowers, you know. The, if somebody who's doing a very good job and good mind, it's bloom like a beautiful. She says the lotus flowers make her happy, and she wants others to be happy too. Usually the Buddhists don't judge anything. Everything has a reason. So I don't decide this is wrong or right. This is good, bad. I don't decide that way. I mean, you know, people want to marry. They are gay. They want to marry. There's no discrimination there. They just want to marry. I mean, that's the way we approach, you know, to understanding people, yes. Now, same-sex relationships aren't legally recognized in Grace's home country, South Korea. But in the U.S., especially in a socially liberal part of a socially liberal city, Grace's beliefs fit with the attitudes she sees in most of her customers. Around the corner, I met Lisa, a laundromat owner from Malaysia. That's a country that's even more hostile to same-sex relationships than South Korea. Lisa arrived in the U.S. a couple of decades ago and married a local. In here, New York. So, so you married a New Yorker? Yeah. We meet in the job. Oh, he I... come to laundry and me. <laughs> he was a customer? Yeah. <laughs> so you were cleaning his clothes before yeah, you were right, married? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so funny, huh? So that's how Lisa got married. And her thoughts about gay marriage? Mm, always good. Why not? Don't bother me. If you like, you can marry for anybody. That's matter for me, you know, <laughs> right? It's normal if he like, he like it. Not your, not your business. Free country here. What do you want, right? Lisa's views couldn't be more different than the official policies of Malaysia, the country of her birth. I asked her what American freedom means for her. She told me it doesn't mean doing whatever you want, like robbing a bank. But she added, it does mean everyone being as free as everyone else. So there you go. Not a scientific sample, and not, I'm sure, reflective of every immigrant's view of what's going on at the Supreme Court this week, but a set of bracingly straightforward opinions nonetheless. For The World, I'm Alex Galafend in New York. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, choice was not an option at the dinner table when writer Gish Jen was growing up. I 
if you were to sort of uh, maybe push your broccoli aside a little bit because you were not too interested in broccoli, you would be made to eat all the broccoli on the table while your siblings watched. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Arab League wants to set up a billion-dollar fund for Muslims in East Jerusalem. The idea came from the Emir of Qatar. His country would pony up a sizable piece of it, and it's not an isolated offer. Qatar already invests extensively around the world, especially in France. It's poured money into French media and construction companies, and it owns a soccer team, Paris Saint-Germain. Qatar would also like to invest in France's poor immigrant suburbs, but that kind of offer makes some French politicians very uneasy. Amy Bracken has a story. Back in 2011, leaders from some of Paris's largely Muslim suburbs got together to discuss a crisis. There was the European economic crisis, and there was the deeper crisis among the children of immigrants living in the low-income suburbs. In some of these towns, the unemployment rate hovers above 20%, it's even higher for young people. So we, we said we had to do something. Leila Legmara is a city councillor from the suburb of Colombe. She's also a member of ENELD, an association of suburban minority politicians. We thought about Qatar because we knew that uh, Qatar invested everywhere in big companies. So we said that maybe they would be interested in uh, investing in the suburbs. So we met with the ambassador And the Qatari ambassador arranged for the group to fly to Doha to meet with the emir. We had lunch with the emir and we spent the whole afternoon with him. And he was uh, quite interested in our project. They wanted Qatar to bankroll loans for suburban youths with promising business ideas. Qatar agreed to set up a fund of about $65 million. But then things got complicated. France's left and right joined together in condemning the plan. Sitting at a street cafe, Eric Coquerel of the left-wing Liberal Front Party says why would Qatar invest? An investment never comes without strings. The danger, he says, is that it could be investing with the idea of promoting a certain religion or a certain way of life. That's not a good thing. Center-right lawmaker Nicolas Dupont-Aignan went further. He says he hates the idea of Muslim countries like Qatar giving money to Muslim communities in France. I don't like that the religious affairs be decided in Qatar because we have a new religion, which is a Muslim religion in France. And this Muslim religion is financed by Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, etc. I refute that. It's not, uh, it's not good. Very dangerous. But Leila Legmara says a Qatar fund for entrepreneurs shouldn't worry anyone. The only objective of Qatar is to invest. It's just a money matter. They invest uh, everywhere, I would even say anywhere, and they know that within these uh, suburbs there are people with a lot of talent, and they know that they can make money with these people because they have, they have great ideas. Others doubt that's Qatar's motive. 
Gilles Capelle is an expert on Islam in the French suburbs or banlieue. Most of those things in the banlieues, they would not make money out of it, but they, they are buying influence. But a young entrepreneur named Munir Benjafal says, what if they are? I'm not pro-Qatari. I don't have the flag of the Qatari state in my room. But the thing is, Qatar right now is needing to make promotion. And Benjafal could use Qatar's help. Yonkini, it is an anti-smoke system. He started an electronics innovation lab in the Paris suburbs of Sergi. But he says getting loans in this economic environment is incredibly difficult. It's even harder if you're the son of North African Muslim immigrants. Talking frankly, from my origin, it's more difficult to have a loan from the bank, to have a contract, or to get a job. It is difficult to prove, but it is very easy to fill. And he says the Qatar Investment Fund could help counteract that. But no one seems to know what's happening with the fund. Former President Nicolas Sarkozy put it on hold in 2011. When François Hollande replaced Sarkozy last year, he said the fund would go forward with matching investment from his own government. The group Aneld was supposed to help administer it. But Aneld's leg Marat says she's heard little since then. We don't really know, actually. They're not explaining. Uh, we have no longer information, neither from the ambassador, neither from the government. Neither French nor Qatari officials would comment for this story, though a French government spokesman did say they're still debating the plan, but should make a decision soon. During the years of debating and waiting, the size of the promised fund has apparently tripled to almost $400 million. And there's another change. Potential recipients could be anywhere in France. The fund is no longer dedicated to the young entrepreneurs of the Paris suburbs. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Paris. It's time now for today's GeoQuiz, and we welcome you. Really, we're glad you're with us. I hope you feel welcome, because that matters a great deal to a lot of people, especially international travelers. If you don't feel welcome, you move on, or you don't go back. Please stay with me now, though, because a recent survey by the World Economic Forum asked people in 140 countries this question, how welcome are foreign visitors in your country? The answers can be used to rank nations from the most welcoming to the least Now we want you to weigh in, take a stab at naming one of the top three countries that are most welcoming to foreigners, as well as one of the bottom three least welcoming places. We'll post a map visualization of the survey results at theworld.org. And we're back with the answers later in the program. Time now to talk numismatics. That's not some kind of physics. It's coin collecting. For many U.S. coin collectors, there's a certain obsession with pennies, specifically wheat cents. Those are Lincoln pennies that have two stalks of wheat on the back instead of the usual Lincoln memorial. There's a similar story in Canada, which discontinued its pennies last year. Canadian pennies had two symmetrical maple leaves on the back and on the front, the head of the British monarchy. These days, it's Queen Elizabeth. But a few extremely rare pennies exist, dating back to 1936. That was the year that King George V died and Edward VIII became king. If you remember your history, that royal succession didn't go so smoothly. And Cristiano Bierenbach, the vice president of international numismatics with Heritage Auctions, explains how that affected Canada's pennies. What happened was in December... Edward VIII, wanting to marry an American socialite, decided to abdicate the throne of England. His younger brother, George VI, took the throne, 
the mint master in Britain and Canada who were worried about shortage of pennies in 1937 decided to continue to use the George V coins by including a little dot under the date. And that was included to differentiate the 1937 coins from the 1936 coins. There was never a need for the dot pennies that had been produced. All those were melted down and only three survived, creating one of the greatest rarities in Canadian numismatics. You have one of these up for auction next month. That's correct. One of the specimens, the only one that was actually struck for circulation that is that has survived is up for auction on April 18th. And we expect the coin to bring 250000 or more. It's interesting because these three coins were virtually uncollectible for 50 years because legendary American collector by the name of John J. Pittman held all three of them. This very coin that we're presenting was originally purchased by, by Pittman in 1954 for $100. He passed away in 1996. The coin came back to auction in 1999, where it sold for about $110,000. And it was briefly away from Pittman, is that correct? That's correct. It was when Pittman owned all three coins, this very coin was actually stolen from his collection. It disappeared for several months. And it was actually returned. Does anybody know what that theft is about and why it was returned? That's just so bizarre. It's very, very bizarre. We don't know if Pittman had a rival or somebody who specifically wanted to attack him on his collecting habits. Or the fact is that we don't know. Nobody ever found out. And Pittman himself didn't know. So Canada's mint stopped producing pennies last year. Now that it's discontinued, is every Canadian penny now more valuable? Not really. I mean, the value at the end of the day, like anything, like any collectible paintings or anything is is a result of supply and demand. In this case, you have a very, very short supply of coins. That is three coins that exist. And and there's there's thousands of collectors that are interested in these coins. And the mintages after that and generally the, the mintages of pennies and nickels and dimes are, are in the millions, sometimes tens of millions. So, you know, we can wait 200 years, maybe 2000 years. And the pennies that are made today or the pennies that were made before Canada discontinued the cents last year are likely never to be worth any significant amounts. So. It's certainly not. It costs more to make them. You know, it costs 1.6 cents to make a penny. So Canada made that move. We'll see if other countries will follow, if the states will follow, you know. Cristiano Birenbach, vice president of International Numismatics with Heritage Auctions, the largest coin company in the world. Cristiano, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. We have a picture of that lucky Canadian penny with the dot on it at theworld.org. So which countries around the globe are the most welcoming to foreigners and which ones rank as the least welcoming? That's what we were asking for in our GeoQuiz. And that's one of the subjects tackled by a recent survey on global tourism by the World Economic Forum. It probed attitudes toward foreign visitors in 140 different countries. Max Fisher blogs about foreign policy for The Washington Post. And Max, you don't represent the World Economic Forum, but you did zero in on the data. Who comes out on top? So according to the survey, the three most welcoming countries to foreigners are Iceland, New Zealand, and interestingly enough, Morocco. Mm. Uh, And their data shows that the three least welcoming to foreigners 
are Bolivia, Venezuela, and Russia. Okay, so let's start with the least welcoming. Bolivia, Venezuela, and Russia, what do you read into that? Well, what's interesting about it is that there's not really a single variable that explains all of the data. It seems like there's actually a few different trends layered on top of one another. One of them is definitely levels of development. Western Europe tends to be more welcoming. Eastern Europe, including Russia, tends to be a lot less welcoming, according to the data. And then within Latin America, it appears that the countries that have more nationalistic and kind of strongly independent foreign policies also appear to be less welcoming to foreigners. Uh, you know, we mentioned Bolivia and Venezuela. Ecuador, which holds itself up as kind of an anti-imperialist bastion, also tends to score pretty low. But a lot of their neighbors, which have, you know, relatively similar histories, similar ethnic makeups, appear to be very welcoming it's possible that foreign policy nationalism could be one explanation for that. From your travels, does that make sense? I mean, do correlations like that scan? I mean, I've been to Mali, one of the poorest countries in the world. They were so welcoming there. It's interesting. Mali is incredibly welcoming to foreigners. Another top-ranking country is Yemen, which I think most people might not immediately think of as welcoming to foreigners. So that's what I love about this data. There's so much to learn from it. Um, you know, again, we're talking about the Middle East, a place that people don't think of as particularly developed or maybe as particularly welcoming to Westerners. Um, and there's huge variation. Yemen, Bahrain, Oman, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Turkey, all very welcoming to outsiders. But Saudi Arabia and Iran are two of the least welcoming countries in the world. So you kind of have to wonder, you know, wh what are the trends here that are kind of pushing these social forces in, in that direction? And the top three countries, Iceland, New Zealand and Morocco, I mean, they're so far flung. Uh, what do they have in common? Nothing that, that I can see. Iceland and, and New Zealand are two very prosperous countries with high human development indices, which tends to correlate with being very welcoming. But Morocco is kind of a puzzle. You know, it's possible that Morocco's history as kind of a center of global trade for many centuries and a center of migration, it's possible that people are just more accustomed to the idea of having foreigners moving through their society and that being kind of a normal part of life. Um, and that's a trend you see in other parts of the world. In Southeast Asia, Thailand, which has a tremendous history of international trade is very welcoming. You asked for responses from your readers. Did you get any interesting feedback? A lot of people from countries that did not rank highly saying, well, that must be wrong because, you know, I'm from Denmark and you listed us as not welcoming, but I'm very welcoming to foreigners. <laughs> what was funny is that you get into conversations with people where they're talking about this. People have different conceptions when they use the word foreigner. And we kind of forget that foreigner can mean you know, oh, wealthy, you know, Western or Japanese tourist, but it can also mean, you know, seasonal migrant worker, illegal immigrant. And I think once people start to see that, okay, a visiting foreigner can mean a lot of different things, they might say, well, you know, I love when German tourists come to my country, but, you know, there is a lot of hostility here towards, say, you know, North African migrant workers. Max, take the data off the table for a minute. What's your own experience? Uh, most welcoming country and least welcoming country in the world? Ooh, good question. Most welcoming country, I would say Egypt, mm. and least welcoming country, I would say Egypt during Ramadan. <laughs> People can get a little bit cranky, as I would too if I hadn't eaten for 10 hours. Washington Post foreign policy blogger Max Fisher, thank you. Thank you. We asked those of you who play our GeoQuiz texting game for your take on the survey, and we heard from many. Doug Scott texted his rankings, which mirrored the survey results. Most friendly for Doug, New Zealand. 
least friendly, Russia. His reason? Overall warmth and congeniality, or a lack thereof. And Jamo wrote to say that the most friendly in his book is Scotland. He says he never lacked for a ride, food to eat, or whiskey to drink there. And then there's Cody, who ranked folks in the Bahamas as the least welcoming. He thought too many tourists there have ruined Bahamian tolerance for outsiders. And finally, Jordan had high praise for residents of his namesake, the Kingdom of Jordan. My name is Jordan, so they got a kick out of that. There's no country called Marco, so I won't have any luck that way. Tell us which country you think is the most or least welcoming at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Author Gish Jen stopped by our studio today. You might know Jen from some of her novels like Typical American and Mona in the Promised Land. Her novels explore the rift in the Chinese-American identity between East and West. In her latest book, Tiger Writing, Art, Culture, and the Interdependent Self, Jen turns a spotlight on her own identity as a novelist in the West with roots in the East, or as she calls it, her struggle between Emerson and Confucius. I grew up in an Asian household with a lot of Confucian ideas and very fundamentally to define myself in relationship to others. The most important thing in my household was to understand what my role was, my responsibilities were, what my duties were. Um, And of course, that was in very sharp contrast to the um, world outside my household where the important thing was to know myself. It was not about knowing my role. It was about knowing the truth within. All ideas, of course, which were just anathema to my parents. Could you just give me an example of, you know, how that changed from inside the walls of your home growing up and outside? All I can think is what my mother will say when I say (laughs) (laughs) I mean, give us a sense of what it was like outside the house and why that was so different to your eyes. You know, I would go to my friends' houses and uh, people were always asked what they wanted to eat. Right? So, what would you like? You know, would you like your coffee black or with milk? You know, you're always given a choice. Um, In my family, there was absolutely no choice, Uh, quite the contrary. Um, If you were to sort of uh, maybe push your broccoli aside a little bit because you were not too interested in broccoli, you would be made to eat all the broccoli on the table while your siblings watched. You know, so these are two very, very different models. You know, one model is you eat what you are given, and the other model is, oh, well, you can pick and choose. Well, not to mention discovering the word dessert for the first time (laughs) (laughs) at your friend's house. (laughs) Absolutely. In my house, there was no dessert. (laughs) So how does that translate? How does that tension translate into actually writing? Well, of course, it's a very complicated thing for a novelist because the Western novel, that novel is very fundamentally a very individualistic enterprise, right? And more than anything else, you have to learn to focus on the self. These were not the foci of my upbringing, um, but it was something that I learned, I will say, quite readily from books. So in China, for example, does that narrative not exist? Is it a different style of presentation of stories? I do think that the traditional novel in China has a very uh, different aspect. If you think of something like The Three Kingdoms, that great epic, you know, it begins, you know, the kingdom long united must divide. It ends the kingdom long divided must unite, right? That's not the Western narrative. The Western narrative, we have beginning, middle, end. By the end, something has changed. You know, in the, in the Eastern narrative, you may have beginning, middle, by end, but by the end, 
things look a lot the way they looked in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, there's a really clear example of that uh, in this book, which actually the book is three lectures that you gave at Harvard about a year and a half ago, right? Right. In that first lecture, you describe your father's autobiography uh, that he wrote at the age of 86. Uh, he's now 93. He bills it as his autobiography, but uh, the starting point is 4,000 years ago. <laughs> um, he doesn't even mention himself until page eight. Uh, what was it like reading that? I mean, what happens 4,000 years ago? Yeah, you know, it was a very strange experience because, of course, it was completely familiar to me in one way, but in another way, it was completely strange to me. Um, not only does my father uh, not talk about himself until page eight, and he really barely talks about himself, but also there's a tremendous amount of, of emphasis given to his house. I remember reading this and thinking, my goodness, you know, isn't this supposed to be about the people? Why, why is it about the house, the doors in the house, the corridors in the house, navigating the house? And it really wasn't until I had dug a little more that I realized, like, oh, I see. It is because he is fundamentally of an Eastern mindset, which is to say that he is focused on his context. He is always looking outward rather than inward. And that, that does give rise to a very, very different kind of narrative. At any point in that autobiography, does he ever look inward? Uh, not, not in the way that <laughs> that, that we expect, um, you know, from Western narratives. And, and when you say what we expect, are you talking kind of a more touchy feely, kind of introspective? Sure, manner? you know, it's you know, and you know how I reacted, how I felt, you know, <laughs> what I wanted. Uh, you know, these are, are 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 not questions which arise at all um, well, in his autobiography. Um. This pull between East and West is something that you've explored a, a lot in your fiction. Mona, the protagonist from Mona in the Promised Land, decides to go against her family and convert to Judaism. How was it different to write about this tug between East and West uh, in nonfiction for you? Well, you know, in a funny kind of way, I feel like I've come out of the closet. You know? <laughs> I mean, of course, I have been writing about it all the way along. The literary world is so dominated by an individualistic frame of mind that it just seemed that to admit that I was part that, but part something else. It was hard for me. The lectures you gave in, in this book that emerged from it uh, came after your father started writing. Was that kind of the trigger for you, the, the thinking about all this stuff, or you've been thinking about it all your life? Well, I've been thinking it all, all about it all my life in various literary gatherings. You know, I had noticed that this other self kind of would appear, and I had noticed that I recognized that person. Um, for example, I was at an East-West conference, uh, writers' conference, and and there was a young Chinese writer there, and she was asked why she wrote. And uh, she did not say, you know, that she wrote to bear witness or to tell stories or to be in communion with Jane Austen. Uh, she said that she wrote because she uh, didn't like to go out, and she thought that by writing novels she could make money and stay home. That was very funny, yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember listening to that and thinking, wow, you know, only a Chinese person would say that. What does that suggest then to you about uh, kind of a younger generation of Asian American writers? Well, I'm hoping that my book will be liberating for them. Many, many, many people have come up to me, and of course, they feel this tension. You know, the writers feel it especially acutely, but many, many people feel it. My hairdresser feels it, who's Brazilian-American. Um, and I think that um, having it out um, in public is something that they can discuss. I'm hoping it will feel liberating for them. Did you ever feel, do you still feel uh, hemmed in as an Asian-American writer, forced to confront this kind of feet-in-two-worlds narrative? But has this been liberating for you, writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a way in which um, certainly there are times in my career when I felt very 
between two worlds, you know, and, and that was kind of an uncomfortable feeling, and feel, you know, this feeling of constant negotiation. Um, but now it feels like that same position feels like a kind of passport. I can be in either world really perfectly comfortably. So it seems like a great gift to me today. Author Gish Jen, her latest book is Tiger Writing, Art, Culture, and the Interdependent Self. Gish Jen reads from that book. We have the exclusive video at theworld.org. Gish Jen, thank you very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. And that's our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. I tweet at Marco Werman. My Instagram has the same handle. And you'll find all of the world's social media connections at theworld.org. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International